Hello and welcome to the Talks at Google podcast, where great minds meet. I'm Matthew, here to bring you this episode with cognitive scientist and philosopher Daniel Dennett. Talks at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Each episode is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. How did we come to have minds? For centuries, this question has intrigued psychologists, physicists, poets, and philosophers who have wondered how the human mind developed its unrivaled ability to create, imagine, and explain. Even though our understanding of the inner workings of proteins, neurons, and DNA is deeper than ever before, the matter of how our minds came to be has largely remained a mystery. That is now changing, says Daniel C. Dennett. In his book, From Bacteria to Bach and Back, his most comprehensive exploration of evolutionary thinking yet, he builds on ideas from computer science and biology to show how a comprehending mind could in fact have arisen from a mindless process of natural selection. Part philosophical whodunit, part bold scientific conjecture, this landmark work enlarges themes that have sustained Dennett's legendary career at the forefront of philosophical thought. Originally published in February of 2017, here is Daniel Dennett, From Bacteria to Bach and Back. Can, can I ask for the house lights to be put up? Uh, I'm not an actor, I'm a professor. I like, to, I like to see the students' eyes. I like to see the audience reactions. I feel very uncomfortable if I can't do that. Okay, so my new book is called From Bacteria to Bach and Back. And that's a bacterium, and that's Bach. <laughs> and I'm going to say a little bit about them, but mainly today I'm going to talk about Bach. Because that's where you folks come in. Yes, Google actually is uh, not just mentioned in the book, but uh, uh, discussed a little bit in the last chapter. So we'll get to that. But first, I have to give a sort of swift review of how I got there. So here's the great tree of life. This is my favorite diagram. This is the present out here at the outer edge. And this is the origin of life here. So time goes this way. Everything that's alive on the planet today is somewhere out there on that fringe. And you can see how it started with the archaea and the bacteria. And then you had this amazing event. This was the eukaryotic revolution, the endosymbiosis that created the eukaryotic cell. The first great technology transfer. Two independent, simple cells bumped into each other, and instead of one eating the other, they joined forces. And it just happened to work, and thus was the eukaryotic cell born. And everything that's alive, that's big enough to see with the naked eye, is a eukaryote. We're eukaryotes, so are pine trees and whales and birds and everything else. Everything else except for bacteria and some other protists. So, this huge, colorful fan out is all the sequel to a chance event that happened 
uh, several billion years ago. And then here is another familiar feature. You may have heard of the Cambrian explosion. Over a relatively short period of time, a few million years, relatively short by evolutionary biology standards, you had a tremendous creative burst of new designs, novelty, and of course, along with the creativity went a lot of destruction. Mass extinctions along with the, it was a tremendous arms race. I'll have more to say about that later. And so then over, way over here somewhere, we have the mammals. And let's just uh, look a little bit larger at the mammals. And let's look even a little bit larger. Oop. And if we look, see that little Y there, right there? That's about six million years, each leg. So that could be the chimps and bonobos on one leg and us on the other. That's how recent hominids are, us. And, and modern Homo sapiens, of course, is much more recent still. So there we are, just a, just a tiny little twig on the tree of life. So there's the tree of life. And I like that particular diagram because it helps us to visualize the history of life on the planet as a history of R&D, of uh, research and development. Um, it's a design process that exploits information in the environment to create, maintain, and improve the design of things. I do not shrink from talking about design by evolution. I think it's a mistake of evolutionary biologists say, we're not going to talk about design because that gives aid and comfort to the ID, intelligent design crowd. No. The, 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 the brilliant designs of evolution, if that isn't design, nothing is because it outstrips human design often by, by many degrees. Uh, let's agree, it's designed without an intelligent designer. That's Darwin's idea. I'll have more to say about that. Well, R&D takes time and energy, as you know. And there are two main varieties. There's evolution by natural selection, and then there's human intelligent design. Low Lowercase i, lowercase d. Are there intelligent designers? The room is full of them. You are intelligent designers, and you're not alone. And there have been intelligent designers for quite a while, but not for millions of years. There have only been intelligent designers for 100,000 years, which is just barely visible on the map of the Tree of Life. We're a very, very, very recent development, and it, we read back features of our own intelligent design into nature at our peril. There are very important lessons to learn about that effort to reverse engineer nature, and I, I indulge in it throughout the book, but there are things you have to be careful about because the process is different in fundamental ways. Evolution, of course, is purposeless, foresightless, extremely costly, trillions and trillions and quadrillions of poor organisms die childless. Oh, 99% of everything that's ever lived died childless. An awful lot of waste. And of course, it's slow, it takes billions of years. 
Contrast that with intelligent design, which is purposeful, goal-directed. It's somewhat foresighted. Not as foresighted as it often thinks it is. And, of course, it's governed by cost considerations, as you all know well. And it's usually relatively fast, even though, as you also know, particularly in the world of software, projects always take longer than you expect, even when you expect them to take longer than you expect. So evolution may be slow and costly, but it is brilliant. Uh, the late, great Sir Francis Crick once made a joke about it, uh, teasing, in a way, his colleague Leslie Orgel by calling it Orgel's second rule, evolution is cleverer than you are. And what he meant is not a, he, he, nobody on Earth would ever be less likely to be a supporter of ID, intelligent design, than Francis Crick. That was not his point. His point is that the process of natural selection, though mindless, purposeless, without imagination, nevertheless, it produces designs that are more cunning, more devious, and more efficient than most human beings can imagine. That's what he meant. So intelligent design now exists. As I say, the room is this where we are sitting in a, in a veritable castle of intelligent design. And it's becoming ever more intelligent. And a lot of you can take some credit for that, too. And this has some surprising implications. Here's an arresting comparison. On the left, you see an Australian termite castle. On the right, you see Gaudi's famous Barcelona church, Sagrada Familia. They're remarkably similar in overall shape and structure and material. And even the interior design, there are many features in common. It's a sort of breathtakingly interesting comparison. So the end product is, stri they're strikingly similar. But the processes by which these products have been made are hugely different. These are my exemplars of a point I want, a contrast I want to, uh, to stress. Uh, the termite castle is made by termites, millions of them. And in a word, they're clueless. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know why they're doing it. There's no boss termite. There's no architect termite. There's no uh, subcontractors and contractors. They're all just doing their little local mindless jobs. And amazingly, the termite castle, with many outstanding design features, like air conditioning, uh, emerges from their very competent but clueless behavior. Gaudi, on the other hand, is just perfect for my purposes because he's the archetypal, charismatic, mad genius hero. The top-down king of design who had blueprints and manifestos and proof of concept and 
And it was all planned out in advance, and he lorded it over his assistants, who lorded it over their assistants, who lorded it over their assistants, who lorded it over the bricklayers and stonecutters and others who built. So we have Gaudi as an exemplar of top-down design, and the termites as an exemplar of bottom-up design. I think that's pretty clear. Now, here's a puzzle. We have bottom-up design and we have top-down design. I've just given you some examples. Now, a termite colony might be as many as, say, 70 million clueless termites. A brain, latest count, 86 billion even more clueless neurons. Your brain is much more like a termite colony than you might like to think. There's no boss. There's no boss neuron, there's no head architect, there's no lieutenants and captains and generals, just 86 billion little mindless neurons doing their thing and having even less know-how and versatility in many ways than, than the termites. So now here's the question. How do you get a Gaudi-type mind out of a termite colony brain? I think it's obvious to everybody that a termite colony, wonderful though they are, they're never going to write any poems, they're not going to have a new form of government, they're not going to build ships, they're not going to do any of a gazillion things that we've done. And yet the whole colony has a structure which is not all that different from the structure of our brains. The neurons are semi-autonomous, quite independent. They live their own little lives and they grope around in their local spaces, not unlike termites. So there's the puzzle. Now what's the answer? Well, the short answer, which has nicely been put by a former student of mine, Bo Dalbum, you can't do much carpentry with your bare hands and you can't do much thinking with your bare brain. Your bare brain is like a termite colony. It can't do much thinking. It's very competent at some things, but it can't do much thinking. And it can't because it doesn't have the thinking tools. A termite colony is a bare brain. Intelligent designers have well-equipped brains, equipped with thinking tools. Where did they get their tools? Well, the wrong answer is from Freeman Dyson. Technology is a gift of God. After the gift of life, it is perhaps the greatest of God's gifts. It is the mother of civilizations, of arts, and of sciences. Freeman is a sweet man. The passage I'm quoting, the first sentence is false, and the rest of that I think is true. So we have to replace that first sentence with something more plausible, something more naturalistic. So if that's the wrong answer, here's the long answer. Cultural evolution. Cultural evolution, the process of natural selection of cultural items, design thinking tools that impose novel structures on our brains. What happened over not billions of years, but only over thousands of years, because cultural evolution is very fast, 
is that virtual machines were evolved that could travel and spread and be installed on different brains, giving those brains powers they otherwise didn't have. Or, as I like to put it, they are apps that we download into our necktops. <laughs> and I mean that almost literally. Our basic mammalian brains are like a computer <laughs> without even an operating system or with only a rudimentary operating system. And then we pile in the apps. And many apps depend on other apps which depend on other apps. And in the end, you have a multi-competent entity that can do things that the bare brain can't do by itself. And that's the power, the source of our power and versatility. Well, that's the long answer, but very shortly put. I want to now spell it out in a little more detail because I want to highlight a few of the important features of this idea, which many people find shocking and repugnant. And I want to acknowledge that and expose it so we can move on from that. So we have to go back to my favorite passage from a critic of Darwin's who talked about Darwin's strange inversion of reasoning. I've read this over the years many times. I still love to read it because it expresses the outrage so perfectly, and I'm going to attempt to do it in a sort of Oxbridge accent because the author, who was originally uh, anonymous, uh, in the book in which he said this, he's listed in the, uh, on the title page as simply a graduate of Cambridge University. <coughs> so here is what he said. In the theory with which we have to deal, absolute ignorance, AI, <laughs> absolute ignorance is the artificer, so that we may enunciate as the fundamental principle of the whole system that in order to make a perfect and beautiful machine, it is not requisite to know how to make it. The caps are in the original. This proposition will be found on careful examination to express in condensed form the essential purport of the theory and to express in a few words all Mr. Darwin's meaning, who, by a strange inversion of reasoning, seems to think absolute ignorance fully qualified to take the place of absolute wisdom in all the achievements of creative skill. Exactly. He's nailed it. That's what Darwin did. And it was a strange inversion of reasoning. Why do we send our children to university? So that they get the wisdom, so that they can then do achievements of creative skill. Here's Darwin saying, that's the other way around. No, we can, we can get brilliant design out of absolute ignorance. Well... The idea was appealing to many people, but it really needed another great Brit to show in detail how this might work. And that's my second hero, Alan Turing. And here's Turing's strange inversion of reasoning. First of all, remember, here's Darwin's strange inversion. In order to make a perfect and beautiful machine, it's not requisite to know how to make it. 
Here's Turing's. In order to be a perfect and beautiful computing machine, it is not requisite to know what arithmetic is. What Turing had figured out was that the computers of his day, who were people, many of them wearing dresses, women who had read mathematics in university, that their jobs could be replaced by a machine from which all the comprehension was sort of laundered out. And that was the dawn of the computer age. So Darwin and Turing together have a common theme, which uh, is expressed in my, I suppose this is my bumper sticker now these days, competence without comprehension. Competence without comprehension. The upshot of this is very alarming to many people. It means that mind, consciousness, understanding, intentionality is the effect, not the cause. That the traditional view with God, the intelligent designer, providing all the meaning and purpose and it's sort of trickling down to the creations. Throw that away. It's not a mind-first universe. It's a matter-first universe. Mind is a very recent development on this planet. Termites are not intelligent designers. Beavers are not very intelligent designers. We are the first intelligent designers in the tree of life, and we come along very recently. But what a difference we've made. I want to talk about the McCready explosion. I mentioned the Cambrian explosion. I want to talk about an even more dramatic explosion, which I call the McCready explosion. Paul McCready, how many of you know who he is? He's a late, great, green engineer. The gossamer albatross, the pedal-powered, the human-powered plane that flew across the English Channel, that's uh, one of Paul McCready's brilliant creations. Uh, a, a real visionary man, uh, wonderful stuff. And he wrote a paper not so many years ago where he calculated that 10,000 years ago, a twinkling in, in evolutionary time, the human population plus their livestock, this is as agriculture was just getting going 10,000 years ago, if you took the human population at the time plus all their livestock and pets, it was probably in the order of a tenth of a percent by weight of the terrestrial vertebrate biomass of the animals. We're leaving out all the insects and the worms and the fish in the sea. Terrestrial vertebrate biomass. A fraction of 1% 10,000 years ago. The percent today is rather higher. Would anybody hazard a guess? 95%? No, that's low. It's 98. We have engulfed the planet. Most of that is cattle. But this is probably the biggest, fastest biological change on the planet ever. And it's happened in 10,000 years. And Genes don't explain it. Technology explains it. And technology is not transmitted through the genes. 
It was, in fact, the result of another great technology transfer. I already described the eukaryotic revolution where two, two protist cells, two prokaryotic cells, each with a billion-year lineage of R&D to give them the talents that they had, joined forces, and suddenly you had this multi-talented new thing, the eukaryotic cell. That was a fecund, happy event, if ever there was one. The next one is the invasion of human brains by symbiotic thinking tools, memes. The term, of course, is from Richard Dawkins, The Selfish Gene. How many of you have read The Selfish Gene? How many of you haven't? Well, put it on your list. It is, it is one of the great science books of the 20th century. And uh, uh, it is often denigrated and dissed by people who are scared of it. It is still, to this day, was published in 76, probably the single best, clearest, and most exciting uh, survey of what we know about evolution that's been written. And in that book, The Selfish Gene, he also wrote about a new kind of replicator which he called a meme, a selfish meme, which are like genes, are like viruses. They are cultural replicators. And like viruses, a virus travels light. It doesn't carry its own replication machinery with it. It has to invade a cell and commandeer the copy machine in that cell to make copies of it rather than the, the, the uh, DNA that the cell was supposed to copy. And he suggested that culture was composed of entities that were similarly capable of provoking their own replication by invading brains. We don't inherit memes via our genes. We learn them from our parents, from our peers, from our friends, from television. We are constantly bombarded with ideas. Some of them stick. Some of them go in one ear, out the other. The ones that stick take up residence in our brain. And then they have to compete for life support with all the others that are trying to get in there. And every time you think it, you make an offspring. Every time you say a word, you make another copy. Every time you think a word, you make another copy. And words are the best examples of means. I'll get to that. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. The main point, though, for our purposes here, is that we don't have to design them ourselves. We are the beneficiaries of thousands of years of cultural evolution. We don't, we don't have to design alphabetizing lists or long division or, or uh, plane geometry or calculus or uh, uh, how to write music or the uh, uh, well-tempered scale or uh, perspective or it could go on forever, of course. These are all highly developed ways of doing things that are not instincts. Instincts are ways of doing things that are passed through the germline, through the, through the DNA. 
Memes are just like instincts. They're ways of doing things, but they're not passed through the germline. They are, they are picked up perceptually, uh, socially in, many, in most cases. We don't have to design them ourselves. In fact, nobody has to design them. So the McCready explosion is an explosive amplification of competence, which eventually, it started off being competence without comprehension. I think it's very important to realize that our early ancestors, the first, the first hominids infected with memes, were still pretty clueless. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't think of it as culture. They didn't think of it as anything. They just had all these new habits that were infectious that got them doing things that they hadn't done before. And it turned out that these built and built and built and built. And pretty soon they had language. And then they had epic poetry. And then they had uh, architecture and boat building. And off to the races we go. And it evolved into competence with comprehension. Finally, we get to comprehension. The Dar so it's the Darwinian strange inversion reinverted. We get a move, a trend, away from bottom-up competence without comprehension to the evolution of a different kind of designing, which is competence with comprehension. To understand this, we have to understand free-floating rationales. Trees do things. I know some people don't like that term. I'm sort of sorry I coined it when I did, but it's sticking, and, and I can't go back and change it now. And in a way, it's sort of evocative, because what I mean by a free-floating rationale is a reason, a real objective reason why something is the way it is that was never anybody's reason until some clever person analyzed the thing and figured out retrospectively what it was good for. Trees do things for reasons. The trees don't know them. They aren't reasons that the trees have and consider, but they do lots of things for reasons. Fungi do things for reasons. Bacteria do things for reasons. The biotic world is saturated with reasons from the molecular scale on up. There are reasons why the parts inside a bacterium have the shapes they do and have the powers they do and fit together the way they do. And we can reverse engineer these. Don't think that those reasons were the reasons represented in the head of any intelligent designer ever. They just were uncovered and exploited by natural selection. And now we, clever reasoners that we are, can sometimes go back and reverse engineer them and uncover the reasons that then become represented for the very first time when we write about it, talk about it, argue about whether this is the reason or that is the reason why something is the way it is. And we do things for reason. We shiver, we vomit, we blink. And we don't have to know why we do it. But there are reasons and there are good reasons. And then there's the things that we do where we choose and decide and we act for reasons. Sometimes we do that without even appreciating that we're doing that. Retrospectively, we may figure out, oh, there was a good reason for that. And of course, sometimes we confabulate, sometimes on purpose. How many of you have ever made a move in a chess game which only later you realized was a brilliant move? <laughs> and did you admit it? 
Ah, there was a very good reason for that. I didn't think of it at the time, but it slowly dawned on me. (laughs) That phenomenon, I'm arguing, is much, much more frequent than we think because we tend to uh, advertise all of our successes with retrospective accounts of the reasoning that led up to them. And it may, in some sense, be accurate. We're actually reverse engineering how we got there. But that doesn't mean we thought of it at the time. It doesn't mean we had the reasons in mind, because you don't need a mind to act for reasons. That's one of the lessons. So the problem that culture solves is, that, is the question, how do you get a Bach-type mind out of a termite colony brain? How do we get intelligent design with representation of reasons out of 86 billion mindless neurons? And that was the second great endosymbiotic revolution. We are apes with infected brains. Our brains have been colonized by all of these viral-like things. A virus isn't alive, but it evolves. Some people think viruses are alive. You can argue about that, but viroids at least aren't. What are they? A virus is a string of nucleic acid with attitude. It just happens to have a shape that gives it the competence to provoke its own replication uh, under many circumstances. Memes, similarly, are things made out of information with attitude. They provoke their own replication. And they don't have to understand this. This is just the secret of their success. We're now ready to look at cultural evolution. And uh, nobody in this room, I think, will be intimidated by such a simple diagram. But I find that for many audiences, I have to sort of lead them through this. This is one of Peter Godfrey Smith's Darwinian spaces. Uh, uh, We can't easily imagine four dimensions or more. So if we want to imagine changes in evolution, not only in things evolving, but in the very process of evolution itself, we can take various features of evolutionary phenomena and map them on three dimensions in a, in a three space, and then put things on the, on, the, on the cube in various places. So in this case, we're going to put uh, down at zero, 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 we're going to put very Darwinian evolution. That is to say, this is um, uh, no, competent, no comprehension at all, mindless trial and error, uh, random search, uh, bottom-up. So if you like, it's sort of termite castle type R&D. Okay? Up in the upper right-hand corner, far right-hand corner, I've put intelligent design, which is high in comprehension, involves top-down methods, and involves directed search, purposefully directed search. So now the question is, how do we get from the lower left-hand corner to the upper right-hand corner in 100,000 years? And what I want to argue is that evolution itself evolved. As cultural evolution got underway, 
the products of cultural evolution changed the very terms of, of selection so that the process of evolution was sped up and sped up and made more efficient, the searches became less blind and trial and error, the organization of the searches became more top-down, the comprehension level gradually goes up, and we end up not at the pinnacle, but close to it. I put Picasso, I put the termite castle down in the lower left, and I'm putting Picasso up in the upper right-hand corner. Not because he was the most intelligent designer ever, but because he said he was. <laughs> he once said, je ne cherche pas, je trouve. I don't search, I find. I just get it without any grubby trial and error, no erasures, no false starts. I just leap with my godlike genius to the Mount Everest peak in the fitness landscape, and bingo, I create another masterpiece. Well, je ne cherche pas, je trouve. My answer is merde. <laughs> Not true. It's an ideal of creative intelligence that even Picasso could not meet. And in fact, if you look at his work, you see that he made sometimes dozens, sometimes even hundreds of variations on a drawing or a painting uh, uh, before he stopped working on that. His, part of his genius lay in the fact that unlike a lot of other artists, he signed those and sold them. <laughs> Imagine if you could do that with software. <laughs> So I'm going to replace Picasso with Bach, who really is an exemplary, was an exemplary intelligent designer, deep comprehension of what he was doing. It was highly constrained trial and error methods. He was a very fast composer. Cantata a week for years. Amazing. And it was constrained by knowledge, by comprehension, by foresight. He really knew what he was doing, and he had purpose and foresight. He was magnificently equipped with thinking tools. He couldn't have existed before the, the system for writing music out and instruments like the organ. And in fact, he wasn't just an organist. He was more famous in his day as an organist than as a composer. He was an organ repairman. He understood organs from an engineering perspective. So he really does make an exemplary intelligent designer. He had music theory. He had the history of music, vast knowledge. This, these are the thinking tools he used. Now, we're ready to look at a comparison. I thank Matt Ridley for this slide, wonderful writer about evolution. On the left, you see an Ashleyan hand axe. They were made by our ancestors for about a million years without any change. It's one of the strangest artifacts ever. A million years without any change. On the right, you see a mouse. 
Nobody invented the Ashleyan hand axe. Douglas Engelbart invented the mouse. The mouse was invented when? Back in the 70s? Maybe late 60s? It's almost extinct. It may soon be extinct. That's the difference in speed of cultural evolution measured on the big scale of the tree of life. So here's our diagram again. And the first thing I want to acknowledge is that we're not the only species that has some cultural evolution. Chimpanzees have a, several traditions of, of nut cracking and of uh, termite fishing or ant fishing that are passed on non-genetically. And there's different traditions in different, in different troops. And that's where it stops. It never goes cumulative. It never goes recursive. It never piles up. That's, they're not a one-trick pony, but they're about a three-trick pony. But now I want to talk about our cultural evolution and all the things that are made of information. These are some of the most important things in our lives. You are very familiar. You are living in this world of things made of information. They have to have a physical embodiment. This isn't dualism. But what matters in every case is something that you can send from A to B in a bit string if you want to. You can't send a bowl of soup that way. So now let's look at the key elements of cultural, uh, uh, cultural evolution in our species. And I think words are the key element. And I want to suggest that the first words that existed were what we might call synanthropic words. Now, a synanthropic species is a species which is not domesticated, but has evolved by natural selection to thrive in human company. Mice, rats, squirrels, barn swallows, bed bugs, cockroaches, and many, many more. Those are synanthropic species. The first words were like that. Nobody owned them. Nobody, people didn't even hardly notice that they were using them. These were just habits that they developed. I go into this in a lot more detail in the book. Next, we get domesticated words. And as Darwin tells us, the, the key feature of domestication is you control the reproduction of the animal. So you have a vocabulary. Those are your words. You have your vocabulary, 50, 60, 70, 80,000 words. And if you ever catch yourself about to say one word and then replacing it with another word, reframing what you say before you blurt it out, those are domesticated words. You're controlling their replication. Not perfectly, but you're playing a strong role in which words get replicated when? And a lot of this is, is beneath notice. But nevertheless, this leads to differential replication. And the words are not always wonderful. I like to tell my students that there are, um, it's quite possible for there to be a, a word or an expression which is of no utility whatever 
but which catches on and which has, because it has its own fitness. It doesn't have to boost your fitness, it just has to be able to survive. And one day a student said, uh, uh, can you give me an example? And I said, well, it's like if you are um, like talking about some subject, like, and uh, like it occurs to you that like maybe there would be a, uh, a word in the sentence that like you didn't have to use all the time. <laughs> and he said, I get the point, I want an example. <laughs> it's very important that memes can evolve without human notice, even though they involve the utilization of human perception. The pronunciation of a term or the meaning of a term can gradually shift over your lifetime or over a couple of generations or over a few years. And suddenly you may notice, oh my gosh, this used to mean something else. Now it means something different. Happens all the time. That's mimetic evolution. After domesticated words, we get coined words. The word meme is a good example. Deliberately coined, sort of like GM food, intelligently designed terms. You can design them all day, but whether they catch on depends. Whether they replicate is, that's the hard part. So even though they are given a boost by human intelligence, they still have to survive by differential replication in the society. Most coined words don't. Then we get to technical terms, which are very deliberately created, designed, and, and their reproduction is fostered by careful training and, and examination and sort of group pressure. We've got to get everybody on the same page here. Now, phenotype, genotype. If you don't understand that, you fail a class. So we, those are sort of hyper-domesticated words where we're very, we expend a lot of energy and time to make sure they replicate and that they rec replicate accurately. And then we get to internet memes. <laughs> and a lot of people would say that internet memes are sort of a reductio ad absurdum of Dawkins' concept of memes. And I used to think that myself a bit. I think it's too bad that this wonderful term is being hijacked and used in this dumb way. And then I realized, and the reason I thought it was too bad, because an intelligently designed meme is a contradiction in terms. You might think it's supposed to be an evolutionarily designed, bottom-up designed cultural item. But my gosh, they have contests to see who can design the most viral internet meme. It's manifestly, these are, this is an attempted intelligent design. But is this a reductio ad absurdum? No. Is this a contradiction in terms? Well, in a way, yes, but so what? A splittable atom is also a contradiction in terms. But nobody goes around saying, there's no such thing as an atom. Uh, so what we have to recognize, and one of the main points of my book, is to show that Dawkins' concept of memes does just fine as long as we allow for the fact that the evolutionary process that it enables, cultural evolution, changes that evolution itself evolves into a process which is ever more like what tradition tells us cultural evolution is, namely 
intelligently designed treasures that are understood, uh, bequeathed to the young, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that traditional views of culture are sort of limiting cases of cultural evolution. And in between, we have every combination and degree of semi-insightful tinkering. One of my favorite examples is the Polynesian canoe. I'm not going, uh, uh, I'm, this is where I got the quote that I'm going to read, but it turns out that the philosopher who, who was writing it was not writing about Polynesian canoes, but about French fishing boats. Every boat is copied from another boat. Let's reason as follows in the manner of Darwin. It's clear that a very badly made boat will end up on the bottom after one or two voyages and thus never be copied. One could say then, with complete rigor, that it is the sea herself who fashions the boats, choosing those which function and destroying the others. That's natural selection. If it comes back, copy it. If it floats, copy it. And notice that if that's the tradition that you're working under, you don't have to know why it's a good boat. You might be all wrong about why it's a good boat if you're just conservative. I don't know why they do it this way, but Grandpa did it this way. I'm going to do it this way. And by and large, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And gradually the design will stabilize and then even improve all without any comprehension required. In fact, comprehension can stand in the way. You can have a brilliant idea, which turns out to be just wrong. Mother Nature punishes you for that. So, in this diagram, the traditional model of culture is when the upper, upper reaches up near the ceiling. It's the economic model of culture, where we think of culture as treasures, you know, high culture. Opera, museums, technology, science the Declaration of Independence, all that wonderful stuff, which we appreciate, preserve, honor, make sure that our children and grandchildren uh, take control of them and appreciate the value of, of keeping them alive and so forth, the preservation of our culture. And that's a very real phenomenon. But what we have to realize is that that's the icing on the cake. In addition to all the treasures of culture, there's all the trash of culture, all the junk, all the graffiti, all the stuff that's just fad and fancy. It comes along for the ride because it can. That's it. It has its own fitness independently of what we think of it. Some of it we'd love to eradicate if only we could, but we can't. So now we're living in the age of intelligent design and cultural evolution has become ever more top-down, ever more comprehending and self-comprehending, ever more refined in its search methods. And of course, the same thing has been true of genetic evolution because we now have GM food and we have Craig Vender, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we seem to be entering a new wonderful world with Google leading the way. But I want to suggest that what we're doing is we're entering the age of post-intelligent design. Why? Because in many fields, intelligent designers are exploiting the truth of Orgel's second rule, that evolution is cleverer than you are. Genetic algorithms, deep learning, evolutionary architecture, nanotechnology, uh, breeding nanotechnology by making uh, novel proteins in an in a evolutionary setting, machine learning, 
These are technologies which produce wonderful epistemological competences without comprehension. Watson beats Ken Jennings in Jeopardy. Google Translate, lovely example of competence without comprehension. And many, many others. And in fact, in science itself, we're now getting black box science, where you got a box designed by some wonderful technocrats, you put the data in, you push the button, you get an answer which you can prove is highly reliable, better than you could do using the old-fashioned methods. Do you understand how it does it? No. Do you have to? No. So we're moving away from the ideal of comprehension that created intelligent design in the first place. One little bit and then I'll close on this. Uh, Noam Chomsky is famous for distinguishing between what he calls problems versus mysteries. Sometimes he calls them puzzles. Problems we can solve, like evolution and quantum mechanics and plate tectonics and meteorology and the Big Bang. And then there's mysteries, which are beyond human ken now and forever. I find that a, I really dislike that idea because it's so defeatist. Basically, it says, give up. Don't even try. But he's inspired some people, some philosophers in particular, to become what has become known as mysterians, who make a point. I, I think they should wear bags over their heads for saying things like this. Um, <laughs> make a point of declaring, we'll never understand it. Well, speak for yourself. The rest of us are going to go on trying, if you don't mind. So I used to have a very, very dim view of this whole approach, and I still do, but Chomsky's recently changed his tune. I want to draw your attention to this. In 2014, he said the following things in a, in a, I think this was in a podcast. While there's a conceptual distinction between problems and mysteries, he says, we accept the best explanations science can give us, even when we can't imagine how they work. It doesn't matter what we can conceive anymore. We've given up on that. Well, does comprehension matter? Do we want post-comprehension science? Do we want technological competence without comprehension? DARPA has gotten into the act with a new initiative for so-called explainable AI, which seems to be directed precisely at this issue. It's going to make AIs that can explain their results to us poor adults who are using the systems. Is that a good idea? Well, I think it depends on how it's done. Should we try to make persons out of these explaining AIs? I think no. On the pro, pro side, it seems, well, that's great. They can explain their reasoning to us. So then they can develop their own imaginative curiosity and epistemic goals. Are we sure we want to do that? I think we shouldn't because it's going to blur the lines of moral responsibility. Because they don't have skin in the game and we want the people who make the decisions that really matter to take moral responsibility for them. And we can do this with some legal innovations. 
We could license users of these new epistemological black boxes, and they would have to prove that they understood the limitations and the boundaries of any system that they used and, as it were, made money using. They would be morally responsible for any misuse of anything that came out of the box that they used, and they would not be able to declare, well, they didn't understand, because you'd have a strict liability law, which it doesn't matter whether you understand. You want to use this tool, you have to take, as it were, the risk of being held liable for something if it goes wrong. That's a bracing test, but it's a good one. It keeps people very honest, keeps, gives them a real sense of due diligence, and keeps them from just taking the manufacturer's word for it and running off into the sunset. Makers should have the responsibility and be, have the incentive to advertise all the flaws, gaps, and weaknesses of their systems. Advertise them. Even, you might even have, I think it would be a good thing, have sort of tutorial programs built into them. You can't use this system until you can spot the flaws. Now, this is going to take you 10 or 20 hours, depending on how clever you are, to really get to understand what's real and what's facade in this system. I think that would be a very good idea. Many years ago, we at, at Tufts, my colleague George Smith and I created the software studio, the curricular software studio. And the idea was to use computers to, to enhance human imagination. We called them imagination prostheses. And what, one of our metaphors was there's two kinds of empowerment. There's the bulldozer way and the Nautilus machine way. The bulldozer way, you can move a mountain, but you're still a 98-pound weakling. The Nautilus machine is a technology which actually enhances your strength, your personal strength. And we want to do the same thing for imagination. We want to make imagination enhancers, systems that help people become better thinkers independently of the system they're using. I think. We want to make AIs that are Nautilus machines for the mind, not bulldozers. Tools, not colleagues. Thank you for your attention. There's, there's microphones. Anybody that has a question should step up to the microphone. Howdy. Hi, you're first. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Um, I'm very interested to read your book, and I was just going through the index, and I see you mention um, Kaufman and Deacon, Terrence Deacon. Yeah. Uh, Deacon a few times, and I was wondering, trying to get the scaffolding right in my mind, when you refer to Deacon uh, in the book, can you kind of put that in perspective against what you're saying, that there's purposelessness in the lower forms of life, because kind of more my reading of him would be, that like an incomplete nature, that like Aristotelian final cause, starts to emerge spontaneously at rather lower levels of order. Do you? Well, well in fact, I think Terry and I do, uh, agree, uh, although put it in slightly different ways. Um, there's a, I did a long and really favorable review of, of, of Deacon's book. It's on my website. Um, and uh, Deacon changed my mind about something that I think is really important. And that's what I discuss in this book. He argues that 
brilliant though Turing and Newell, Newell, Simon McCarthy, Minsky, and uh, Shannon, let's say, are as brilliant as the simplifications that they created which made the computer age possible. There's an important regard in which they've led us into the wrong set of architectures. Because all the architectures that are made possible by their simplifications involve a separation of energy and information. You don't have to worry, a computer doesn't have to worry about where it's, where it's going to get its, its, its voltage from. <laughs> it's, uh, computers are parasitic on us. And he says, life isn't like that. The thing that is most important about, say, a brain is that those individual neurons are semi-autonomous. And you have to remember, they are the, the way I put it in the book, they're the direct descendants of free-floating eukaryotes that fended for themselves in a difficult ocean environment for millions of years before they ever became parts of multicellular organisms. What are they doing in there? They're trying to stay alive. This is Deacon's point. You make me an architecture of basic parts which are trying to stay alive, which are looking for work. That's going to be a really different computer architecture from anything that we see coming out of the sort of von Neumann tradition. Even programs which have some of the flavor, um, well, Production systems and, and uh, many architectures of good old-fashioned AI have this nice sort of competitive feel, but they, they're not, it's not fundamental enough. So I think, I think Deacon's book, Hard As It Is, is a very good read for the reasons that I, I describe in the book. Uh, but I don't think that he says, and if he does, this will be a point of disagreement with him, that Teleology in any sort of very strong sense comes in. Well, I agree that it comes in with the, with, the, with the origin of life. I've got a whole section of what happened before bacteria. That's, to me, one of my favorite sections in the book, talking about how life could ever get started. And what I argue there is that teleology comes in gradually. As we move, as I put it, from how come to what for. Two different why questions. I, to teach my students this, I have a pair of examples. Um, why are planets spherical? Why are ball bearings spherical? There's a reason, there's a what for for the ball bearings, but not for the planets. Why aren't asteroids spherical? Why aren't dice spherical. There's a how come for the asteroids and a what for for the dice. What Darwin's brilliance permitted was to show how we move from a universe, a planet, where there's only how come. 
there's no teleology to a world in which there's what for, where things have purposes and functions. And that is itself a gradual process. And I think he agrees with that. Yeah. Um, hi. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of yours. I'm also a fan of David Chalmers. Um, and I, I sort of have a question for you. Maybe you've kind of answered this already. Um, which, like, I, I'm curious as to, like, when, uh, when something sort of becomes, like, a moral agent, or, like, when, or not an agent, but rather, like, a, a patient, like, when... When does uh, something, when does it have interests that matter? Will that do? Well, right, so, but I wonder, though, that, like, if I'm a moral patient and I have like a nerve which causes pain and I'm trying to avoid that. Uh, how is that different from like a computer that I'm programming which has like a cable on which, you know, a signal is transmitted which might be the pain signal of some sort of mind that we don't comprehend yet? Well, you know, um, we addressed that very issue um, in Rod Brooks' lab when we were building COG. 15 years ago, the humanoid robot. Um, and COG had these motors that stuck out of its elbows. And they were a little bit fragile. And we didn't want COG to be able to move its arms so that it would uh, uh, damage them. So we sort of gave it a, fu gave it a funny bone. <laughs> so that... If it ever did anything bumped its these motors, it, it sent in effect a pain signal. So it said, mustn't do that again. So yeah, we can have a functional this was of course a top-down designed system to give COG the humanoid robot a quasi a quasi pain system because it had some of the functions of a pain system. And if we'd continued with that and expanded it by you know, many orders of magnitude, the project made some wonderful progress, but you know, not 1% of what, what you'd have to do, um, then eventually we would have had a robot that would have interests and where it would be wrong to uh, thwart those interests. It would be capable of something like suffering. But we never got that far. <laughs> okay, thanks. But I don't think there's, you mentioned Chalmers, I don't think there's a sort of extra Zowie ingredient, qualia or something, which the living things have and the things made of silicon don't have. I think that's uh, just a bad idea. Well, I, I think Chalmers, I'm not saying Chalmers is right, but I think he would go towards the direction of even silicon has that, like, panpsychism or something like that. But, okay, yes. thanks, sir, yeah. <laughs> panpsychism is the view that everything is, everything, everything is conscious. And I think, I almost agree with it, but I, I just got to change the view a little bit. I call my view pan-niftyism. <laughs> everything is nifty. Every atom is nifty, every electron's nifty. Now the question is, is there any difference between panpsychism and pan-niftyism? 
They both explain the same things, namely nothing. <laughs> if you can tell me how panpsychism is an improvement over panniftyism, I'd be very interested to learn. Well, it's because conscious things are made out of conscious things. Oh, really? That's it? Colored things aren't made out of colored things. No. Um, yeah, thanks for coming. Uh, honored that you're here. I'm also a big fan. Uh, you mentioned skin in the game and uh, the idea of building into, into I don't know, into economics or into legal systems uh, the incentives for uh, makers and users of tools to to have to deal with uh, the implications of the tools, of using the tools. But I was wondering, and I guess that's more a question of politics or economics, how realistic that is. I'm thinking particularly of, uh, of uh, I don't know, fake news, alternative facts, the use of media and social media to, to spread viral memes intentionally to, to provoke uh, human action to one direction or the other. And uh, that is, I, I, I feel that that is its own incentive. The possibility of doing that is so powerful that it's very hard at this stage to build limitations to do that for simple things like, like internet memes, misused internet memes, let alone uh, uh, AI tools or whatever like that. So. Well, I hear you. I think this is, I think we underestimate how serious these problems are. I don't share your pessimism, but I agree it's almost too late and we ought to be thinking a lot harder and a lot faster and we ought to be acting more to try to fend off the trends that we can see happening. I think that really it is the response, and boy, if there's any audience in the world I want to spread this message to, it's you folks, um, think very hard about what the unintended consequences of some of the innovations are and whether there are ways of steering them down more socially benign directions. I think there are, and I think the time is short. But I think we should get cracking on it now. <laughs> so there's, uh, just to follow up shortly on that, uh, is there, there's a, there's such a thing as a personal interest and such a thing as group interest and such a thing as like societal interest, whatever, however defined society. So is there's a bit of a, a is there a bit of a conflict there and how so you, you say we should do this, but of course for all of these situations there's this personal interest by a, a, a certain group. So I, I I you're doing your part by spreading the right memes I I think and. Uh, well, thank you. Um, I'm certainly trying. Um, I think that actually one of the one of the most heartening changes that I see on the uh, in the recent development is that now that Silicon Valley is producing all these um, young plutocrats, young billionaires, and a lot of them are really taking seriously the idea of putting, putting that vast economic power they have to socially benign uh, uh, projects, and they're taking seriously. Good intentions aren't enough. They've they got to figure out what 
you can really mess things up by squandering a fortune with good intentions on a bad idea. And I think that this ideal of having taking it as a personal responsibility to use this incredible economic power for good and the fact you, you help each other do it better, this is one of the best developments I've seen. And we're not quite at the point where we can start seriously shaming those who don't treat their wealth that way. And I don't think we're going to have to. Shaming doesn't usually work anyway. But if we can make them feel like they're sort of second-class plutocrats, <laughs> then this would be a step forward. Thank you. Yeah. Hi. Um, I want to ask you about, uh, I guess, language and kind of the, the limits thereof and try to get a little bit at attention that I think um, came up in your talk. So this is a little bit about uh, the Chomsky criticism that you give and a little bit about sort of the, the tension between the Anglo-American uh, analytic philosophy and the European continental tradition. So it sounds like, on the one hand, um, you're, you're, um, you're challenging Chomsky and saying that uh, that you know, reason and language kind of has a mapping to the real world that we can explain, and that there's there isn't there isn't really a limit to language, right? These mysteries don't exist; they're not beyond human thought; they're not beyond perception or methods of expressing them. But then, at the end of your talk, when you started talking about uh, the dangers, at least what I perceive is, as you mentioned, the dangers of AI yeah. about uh, competence without comprehension, it sounds to me like the the fear there actually is very much that it's encroaching on the hegemony of language, right? That we, what we don't want to happen is to have meaning or something extra, you know, like outside of the scope of meaning, um, that that kind of messes up our whole calculus, right? Morality stops making sense, epistemology stops making sense, ontology, like th that these concepts and things that we say are so hegemonic mm -hmm. and really do have this very concrete mapping to physical things starts to go away. And so I'm curious, you know, kind of, sounds like you're saying both things, that on the one hand, there's a danger to like meaning escaping us, and then on the other hand, we actually have hegemony over this. Good. Um, I hadn't thought of tying it to the difference between you know continental and Anglophone analytic philosophy. Uh, and aside from thinking that, with a few exceptions. Uh, the Anglophone philosophers are not postmodernists and don't and still have a, a, a proper respect for truth, <laughs> facts. And I think that the damage done by postmodernists to the very ideal of objectivity and truth is that's vandalism. One thing I said, which I maybe didn't stress enough. At this time, let's look at science. You have competition now. Who can make the cheapest, fastest gene sequencer? And it's getting really cheap and fast, and you just push the buttons, and it's like it's like a TV dinner. You just you know put it in the microwave and push the button, and out it comes. Uh, it's amazing how much of, of that process which, which took genius 
which took brilliant drudgery by, by Nobel laureate scientists to do within my adult lifetime. And now you just push a button and you get it. Uh, but look at, so there's competition among different makers of gene sequencing machinery. And what's the benchmark? Why do you buy unit A rather than unit B? Because unit, well, maybe because it's cheaper, but not if it's not as accurate. Truth really matters. It's, it, is a, it is a design in the same way that uh, fuel efficiency or safety or design requirements for cars. So getting it right is taken for granted as a, as a requirement for the scientific black boxes. Or, you know, getting it right with a high, a high degree of reliability or probability. Now, I can't yet, I don't know of any black boxes that are trying to avoid that and are just trying to make memes that'll spread, truth be damned, uh, utility be damned, but maybe there are, in which case, that's a very ominous development. Well, on that apolitical note. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode, We'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash talks at Google slash podcast feedback to leave your comments. To discover more amazing content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash talks at Google, on our website, google.com slash talks, or via our Twitter handle at talks at Google. Talk soon. <laughs>